0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, because we got to 100 patrons, and we, in our foolishness, promised to do this, uh, we we are doing Don't Look Up, the new Netflix film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm sorry, but we have to, because we said that we would, and and so we did. We're going to try a new order. I'm going first this time. I think it has something to do with the fact that I I tend to summarize things a little bit, and we thought maybe you guys might like it if I go first. But please react to me going first and tell us what order you think we should go in, because we realized we'd never really thought about it, and we'd never really made a decision. We just, Helen would go first, and then Nina, and then me. I don't know why we did it that way, but we're changing it. I'm going first, and then Helen, and then Nina this week. So let me know. Uh, Let us all know what you guys think. So I'll start off. I watched Don't Look Up with my girlfriend. She was disappointed. She thought it was going to be a remake of Deep Impact. Remember Deep Impact? My girlfriend wants you to remember it, and if you don't remember it, she thinks you should see it. She says it's a much better movie. IMDb doesn't agree. It gives Deep Impact a 6.2 compared to Don't Look Up 7.2. But at a time when The Power of the Dog has been nominated for 12 Academy Awards, and Pig has zero nominations, can we really trust these things? Deep Impact plays the comet-speeding-straight-for-Earth thing straight. In that movie, Elijah's soon-to-be Frodo Baggins Wood discovers the asteroid, and President Morgan Freeman takes it seriously. A bunch of good-faith efforts are made to solve the problem, things don't go according to plan, but everyone does their best and humanity is able to mitigate the damage the comet causes to a significant extent. Don't Look Up plays the whole thing for laughs. Or does it? The film doesn't seem sure how seriously it wants to be taken. None of the things that happen in this movie strike me as plausible or realistic, but I think the film wants me to think that at least some of them could happen. Here's a short list of the things I couldn't buy. First, DiCaprio's character specializes in trace gases in dead galaxies. Even if his PhD student found the comet, I don't see why he would continue to be involved in policymaking about this. I would think they would pass this along to the scientists who specialize specifically in comets and the scientists who specialize specifically in ballistic weapons. Not him. Doesn't make sense. Second... We're meant to believe that the media would not sensationalize the hell out of a comet speeding straight toward Earth. In this movie, the only journalists who are really interested in this story are sober, heroic print media journalists. Nobody makes more money off fear and hysteria than journalists. Regardless of the medium, it would be all over the place. Third, I don't understand why the president needs Congress to approve an emergency spending bill to deal with the comet. A comet is clearly the kind of national security issue which the president would have the prerogative to address without congressional authorization. The War Powers Resolution only requires the president to seek approval from Congress if the president wishes to maintain armed forces in foreign territory for more than 60 days. Presidents have previously staged interventions in countries like Yugoslavia and Libya without congressional authorization. A comet does not take two months. Shouldn't be that big a deal. Fourth, there doesn't seem to be any reason to send a manned space shuttle on a mission alongside a bunch of nuclear weapons. If that space shuttle explodes before it exits the atmosphere, as space shuttles sometimes do, the debris would hit the nuclear weapons, and that would not go very well. Fifth, turning the shuttle and the nuclear weapons around mid mission would be an optical disaster for the administration. Politically, the administration would never recover, regardless of how many tons of rare earth metals might subsequently be found in the comet. That just optically, it's, it's awful. Sixth, if the comet is broken up into smaller parts so as to render it harmless, those parts would burn up in the Earth's atmosphere, making it impossible for them to be mined. Seventh, I absolutely believe that if the United States were unable or unwilling to deflect the comet, The Russians would pull it off. They'd call the mission Sputnik 6. The notion that only the United States is capable of deflecting a comet is more than a little bit silly. In point of fact, there are a number of existing international agreements about comets and asteroids. If this really happened, we would definitely work with the Russians. As early as 1979, the film Meteor depicted American and Soviet scientists working together on this kind of problem. During the Cold War, Americans did a better job of remembering the importance of finding ways to cooperate with our rivals. Even in deep impact, the Russians are part of the American mission, and a cosmonaut flies alongside the astronauts who travel to the comet. In recent years, the attitude of the American elite to Russia has alternated between dismissiveness and hostility. When the Russians try to negotiate with us, we trivialize their concerns and refuse to budge on the issues that matter to them. When the Russians assert themselves... We call them Nazis. Either the Russians are a gas station with a COVID vaccine we don't have to respect, or they're the Third Reich subverting our media and threatening to restore the Soviet Empire. Neither perspective holds much truth. This film, which came out before the new war in Ukraine, treats treats Russia as an afterthought. In that respect, it already feels painfully out of date. When this film was made, they clearly had climate change in mind, and I suspect they figured it translated pretty well to coronavirus. But those are both complicated issues, requiring a lot of global coordination. A comet is pretty simple. Either you have the technology to deal with it, or you don't. Politically, there's nothing to it. There are no civil liberties issues, no economic conflicts of interest. Defeating a comet doesn't require anyone to self-isolate. It doesn't require any lucrative businesses to stop operating. Any government that blows up a killer comet shoots up in the polls. And yet this film, despite all of that, dominated Netflix for a while, although I think recently it's been passed by Tyler Perry's new Medea film. It has been nominated for a lot of awards. There's an audience that finds this highly compelling, that thinks it is a plausible satire of the kind of society in which we live. I think this film says a lot more about its audience than it does the real world. The people who love this film think big, complicated issues like climate change and coronavirus are very simple. They think that the science says there is one right thing to do, and that only extreme stupidity and selfishness prevents governments and corporations from doing this right thing. High school and college students often think everything would be better if the people in charge were a little less evil or a little less stupid. At a certain point, though, we're meant to move on from this kind of Harry Potter logic. Climate change is hard to solve because billions of poor people's livelihoods depend, directly or indirectly, on the burning of fossil fuels. Coronavirus pitted important human values against each other, asking us to prioritize safety or freedom, the old or the young, the sick or the poor. These are not simple issues, and a film about a comet won't help us solve them. But there's a chunk of people out there who want to believe that it will. By trivializing the values of others and chalking up disagreement to greed and stupidity, Films like Don't Look Up deepen a cultural battle and make it harder for us to talk to each other. It is a shame that it's been nominated for four Academy Awards. I think the most interesting question about Don't Look Up is whether it's worse than The Power of the Dog. But I doubt Helen and Nina have subjected themselves to that. Or have they? Well, let's hear from Helen and Nina and find out what on earth they think. What's Helen, on, you're what's next.
1: on earth? Oh, what's on... Outer space comment com- coming towards Earth. So, um, I think I've been talking about this topic for a long time, and how you know, wokeism is sort of yesterday's news, and that the you know, our, I do think a lot of our problems today stem from a mystification, and mystification that really is to do with mystifying nuance. But the irony is that there's a dialectic in the nuance, because at the end of the nuance is really something much r- rather simple in terms of like the reality of our world. But to get to that simplicity, we have to sort of, you know, go through nuance. And so I think what I'm going to say is sort of quite roundabout and quite complicated. But I think when new sort of like capitalist copes emerge, um, they're quite tricksy and they get a lot of people. And, you know, even when I first watched this film, at least the first part of watching the film, and I kind of knew the premise, obviously, it was sort of was in the press already. Um, you know, I was wondering, is this either a genius and self-ironic description of the lack of imagination of liberalism? You know, as in the, at the end, there's nothing we can do except just, you know, be obliterated in this sort of like cosmic, phantasmic explosion of jouissance and oblivion, or, or is this just an emergent of this kind of logic? You know, there is, an, the film is part of this logic. And I do think that this, it's an emergent of the neoliberal thinking. And the reason why I think it is the emergent and not something self-ironic in reality is that what we face all the time is precisely not an ignoring of the catastrophic, but a libidinal investment, a morbid fascination in the catastrophic. So, what I'm sort of talking about here, and I'll get on to a, a quote from, from Bruce Fink about a psychoanalytic interpretation of anxiety and this sort of morbid fan, fascination with, you know, um, not just normal, ordinary death, as in us insignificant nothings that are just going to. Die unknown, not even a footnote of history, but a sort of a cataclysmic obsession with you know the end of the world, and really, so this this anxiety, anxiety can act as a fetish to cover over a true emotion that is it's more convenient to not face because it can be quite difficult. But just as you know, in terms of uh, the alcoholic's symptom, you know that the symptom um, is a solution to a problem. Or you know uh, Marx's statement about um, the opium of the people. That really beneath that there is a, the place. There is a, a possibility of picking the living flower, but it 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 requires dealing with nuance, contradiction, and difficulty. And so this morbid fascination. And, you know, I I'm not somebody who is outside of this. You know, in terms of like sort of a psychoanalytic ap- approach, this applies to everybody, even the person talking about it. And I'm a very anxious person actually. But it's this. This ang- it's interesting to understand what anxiety is. So anxiety can be a fetish that covers over the dynamics that generate the conditions which could lead to an event that the anxiety is concerned about. And I think the fact that, you know, it's precisely not like, look, you know, so this, it's this thing of don't look up. And obviously it is like, really, you should be looking up and you should be looking at the skies and you should be looking at this thing coming up. And, you know, ideology, quote unquote, is telling you to not look up wrong. Ideology is precisely telling telling everybody to be obsessed with, this, with the worst case scenario. And that really, you know, if we're looking at um, looking down, looking at baseness, looking at humanity, looking at the actual symptom, and we might say that the symptom which we can see if we look down is everybody looking up. <laughs> And a tarrying with that symptom can get us to a place, as I said before, that gets us to create the conditions whereby we are less likely to create the situation that we're all fantasizing about. And this is where, you know, the silly capitalistic deviation in some of the insights about the unconscious, like manifestation emerge. But there is something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, if you if you follow the logic of utopianism. I've said it many times. We do not live in a perfect universe. We live in a perfectly imperfect universe. There would be no life without imperfection, without the lack, without contradiction, without the split, without contingency, without chaos. But we, facing that, facing the reality that we are just nobodies, we're literally nobodies, the history will not care about the vast, vast majority of us. We want to, instead of embracing the freedom and the political potential of that emancipatory contradiction, we want to project utopian futures. And these utopian futures can only be sustained by morbid fascinations with like things that could take everything away, because only behind these things does the um, imagination that we could have had a universe that was absolutely perfect were it not for X, Y, and Z. And also we require enemies to sustain the fact that we wouldn't have had World War III were it not for this one contingent person, not understanding that this one contingent person is a emergent always of a greater, deeper, nuanced and difficult um, dynamic. That really the work of psychoanalysis is to look at that difficult stuff. So the fact is, yes, it says you don't want to look up, but everybody clearly wants to look up. This was a massively um, successful film. Number one on Netflix for a while. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio got $30 million. Jennifer Lawrence got $25 million. We're talking about a massive, 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 you know, and that's not to say this is not like an ethical question about money. We could go on about sort of people flying in private jets whilst talking about climate change, obviously, but that's, I'm not interested in that. This is just to indicate that this is a big and popular piece of work. So, Morbid fascination with certain realities has to do with avoiding a confrontation with something much more boring that undercuts life. Ordinary death, ordinary unhappiness. Nobody really cares about us. The fact that we all die pretty much nameless and that we aren't so significant that we will be the ones to live in the time that everything falls apart. (laughs) Looking up precisely prevents reckoning with the here and now, which can in fact be much more difficult to deal with. This is the dynamic of anxiety. So this is a quote by Bruce Fink Fink and a friend on um, Instagram, Jason Charles, uh, quoted this last time, indeed, uh, the other week, the other day. Indeed, anxiety is a universal currency of emotion. All emotions being able to be converted into anxiety when suppressed by one's self-critical faculties, the ego or the superego. Anxiety must not be taken at face value, but is something always potentially indicative of some other emotion being censored. So really, the question I think we should ask is, what are we getting out of this libidinal investment in catastrophe? What is it saying about a repressed emotion? What are we denying about reality? And as I said, this this dynamic falls precisely into the utopia dystopia dialectic that Marx talks about, that Hegel talks about, and we've talked about a million times. In order to sustain the fantasy that we can have a world beyond antagonism, we fantasize about apocalyptic events to avoid the tearing with something much more ordinary that creates the crisis in the first place. So, to get to the solution, we have to do the deep work. Obviously, often when things happen, like shit happens, cataclysmic things happen. It, they might be people might be right that the end of the world is, is about to happen, but in order to prevent the end of the world happening, you have to turn your face to reality to understand the dynamics that create this as an emergent. And this morbid fascination is very much the thing that will guarantee that this thing, you know, actually happens. So morbid fascination as well, you know, under our current order of things serves many purposes. It allows for everything to feel constantly under threat, you know, and of course this this creates value. You only want what you can't have and it prevents anything from ever being done. Capitalism, obviously, it doesn't have a mind, but let's say it's a dynamic. And tarrying with the dynamic is precisely the thing that undercuts it. So pointing out the reality, for example, the very simple thing of pointing out surplus value, what is beneficial to the market is constantly mystifying, constantly coming up, particularly with ethical you know, solutions that make us feel good about what we're doing, but actually disguise the very thing, that uh, the very contradiction that we're not facing, the very thing that generates all the problems like war, like climate change, et cetera, et cetera. We also are allowed to feel morally superior. And this is part of the enemy making that is uh, created and sustained by this utopian market logic. The urgency and moral superiority allow for a sustaining of a toxic system that would only be undercut by a true universalism of lack. We're all Mr. Nobodies. We're together in our Mr. Nobodiness. Left wing politics, in its truest sense, is not about holding the right beliefs. You know, it's not about consciousness raising. It's not about don't look up slash absolutely look up. It's about recognizing the division in all of us. You know, we don't have to have the right opinions to be left wing. <laughs> being left wing shouldn't be about having the right opinions. It's about recognizing the dynamics of the primary system in which we, we live. You know, the really question is, who's being fucked by surplus value? And morbid um, fascination, as I said, and, and this is to do with the dynamic of of dialect, the dialectic of of utopianism is, it does become reality, precisely because it prevents a tearing with the things that create the possibility of it occurring. And also because it's necessary to sustain the fantasy that the world will be perfect were it not for one contingent thing. So it's, this is not, this is not manifestation, but it is the dialectics of purity and utopianism. And death drive, you know, we can always talk about, you know, this this dynamic, this utopian dynamic, has to do with with death drive. In this instance, the utopianism, so as in the world would be perfect if it wasn't for the sort of Trumpist, Meryl Streep idiot, and all these idiots who won't listen to the science, and all these idiot people who won't listen to the right on journalists. You know, um, in this instance, it is it is sort of like a death thing, but. But really, death drive is about an attempt for life, an attempt for returning to wholeness and completeness. But in wholeness and completeness is death. You were more whole and complete in the womb. It was a tomb. But it also, you look at everything the universe is divided anyway. So, um, yeah, and, and also, you know, we, we, we must constantly shoot ourselves in the foot. Capitalism, as we say, it paints itself as a highly uh, logical and um, and productive system, which in some ways it is, but we can't deny the constant foot-shooting that occurs with the market system um, fueled by the ideology of promise. You know, we could have a um, system of exchange that isn't tied to the ideology of promise, and potentially we would have less of a destructive system. And so this this foot shooting of climate change is precisely, you know, one of these issues. I read that Zizek said that Merrill's character is based on Hillary. I don't agree with that. He's very obviously a Trumpist type character, but perhaps we can say, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe Zizek's right. Both Trump in a sense and and Hillary embody the both sides of the capitalist position. You know, this is something that, um, and I say both sides, because I think for instance, one of the co-producers and um, I don't know if he was a writer or if if it was built, based on a story by him, you know, was a Bernie um, script writer so this is also, you know, a left liberal position, really. You know, this is this is the reality of left liberalism. And so, yeah, I really think <coughs> it's an accident. It's an accident on the part of the filmmakers. You know, we say that sometimes the best films to talk about are the ones that really are ideological because it becomes so obvious in the artifice of film where where, you know, the ideology emerges. And it's really clear here. Obviously, this is a bit more kind of it took me a while to sort of get to this point, although it's really the same thing I say every week, to be honest. But you know, this is this the ideological supplement is the looking up at the sky, is the fantasy, is the morbid, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And that's not to say that, you know, people are dying and terrible things are happening. We shouldn't actually take action for those things. So, as I say, the problem is not even wokeism now, it's a self-aware capitalism, but it's not really self-aware. It's precisely less aware. But anyway. Um, it's a repression of contradiction, a faux left wing, using all sorts of left wing decorations, but never getting into the heart of the issue, surplus value justified by the ideology of progress. All
0: right, Nina, it's your turn.
2: Right. Uh, well, I, I, fi- I feel like I, I must be honest. Um, as, as, a, as a critic, I always uh, try very hard to read and watch and listen to things uh, more than once uh, when I was re- reviewer music reviewer uh, for unmentionable cowardly magazine that dropped me pathetically a few years ago um, I would listen to every record 40 times at least um, before I reviewed it and I, I I pride myself on on being a diligent critic in this regard whatever I'm reviewing and so I, I feel I, it would be unbecoming of me to not admit that I didn't finish this film because I entered into a state of hyper-distraction, partly by drinking way too much caffeine and then getting caught up in a variety of very interesting conversations about the situation in Ukraine and uh, other things. So I did watch most of this film, however. um, And yes, I, I appreciate my uh comrades <laughs> my friends disc- discussion and description uh, uh thereof insofar as i got to the bit where they they saw the comet coming when they they stopped their cars um you know i understood it as as, as a as a as a metaphor for for uh for climate change and so it could could easily be read in this way that that the that somehow the the if something is uh, more urgent and proximate, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will do anything about it. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a way of thinking about um, how we might deal with uh, impending crisis and try to understand our own relationship to time. Um, In this respect, it reminded me a little bit about Peter Singer's famous example of the suede shoes and the pond uh which is uh, uh the the you walk past a pond you've just bought some 400 pound suede shoes uh someone is a boy a, oh i don't know a girl a, a young person is is drowning in the the pond uh perhaps you don't know their gender uh it would be inappropriate to assume in any case you 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 feel compelled to jump in and try to save the the, the gender indeterminate child, uh, thus ruining your £400 uh, pair of shoes. Um, and the the obvious kind of point about this is, well, why don't you send the £400, if you're willing to do that, why don't you send the £400 to a charity of your choice, where indeed it might well save somebody's life or indeed multiple people's lives. Um, and this is a very famous utilitarian example of uh, the problem of proximity in charity amongst other things. And it is an interesting one to ponder. Um, and... In relation to this question of the destruction of the world and the uh, extinction of uh, humanity, I suppose it is a um, a dominant uh, melancholic feature of our contemporary discourse that even though we know we are heading for destruction, we are unable, psychically, to think ahead because of the short-termism not only of politics but because i think uh of a confusion between as helen mentioned a, a little bit the 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 inability to separate our own finitude from that of the finitude of humanity as such um and i think one of the things that became clear at least for me in covid was of a kind of absolutely foundational um increasing inability of western societies to deal with the fact of death um which we can extreme we see an extreme uh, circumstances in the uh, Silicon Valley bid for immortality and the the desire for uh, extended if not um, permanent life which has always afflicted the elites who feel themselves kind of too special to have to suffer the indignities of, of mere finitude uh, and mortality um, and I think there is a kind of fundamental how to put it fault line um, in this question of um thinking about finitude individually and socially, collectively and planetarily, I mean on some level we know that the, the the Earth, if we even make it that far, will be swallowed up by the sun. The heat death of the universe is a is a, a feature of our of our cosmos. Um and I think the film that perhaps dealt with this uh, better was melancholia or at least in a more interesting way uh last von trier's melancholia which i saw in the cinema during the riots in 2011 the english riots so called uh which is a very interesting moment to to see this film uh, and this is a film about similarly about a, uh, a a comet or a planet i think a planet h- hitting the earth or or coming close enough to the earth to destroy it, but it's really also a film about depression, and I w- I was thinking about what Helen was saying about anxiety, um, and anxiety is a kind of uh, co- cover story. It's quite interesting actually to um, to to go. Perhaps undergo through various life experiences that actually reduce anxiety, uh, precisely through a confrontation with your own death or your own mortality. Uh, Having myself been very ill and being brought to very uh, terrible situations, both socially and (laughs) mentally and physically, uh, and also inducing them on occasion uh, via the use of entheogens and having engaged in vast quantities of ego dissolution and uh, the confrontation with uh, mortality. It's actually very interesting to. in a way, think beyond the anxiety-related uh, reality of one's own death and to accept it as a, as a fact insofar as it's possible to integrate that understanding uh, into one's own life um, and to, in a way, be able to say, ask oneself the question, if I, if I died now, will it be okay? Am I okay with this? And, and, and in some sense... Yes, I would like to tidy my office before I die. And I think perhaps partly never tidying my office properly is indeed uh, a symptom of of this uh, residual desire to cling on to life, which I do indeed possess. I'm, I'm not in the least bit uh, morbid or, or suicidal, uh, though I am interested in very, very dark and extreme things uh, on the regular. But uh, I <laughs> I nevertheless, uh, I don't know, there, there is a kind of interesting point. I think it's possible to get to it. We would describe it in an everyday sense as a philosophical acceptance, uh, of of death, and it, it partly requires putting your own life in order, which is not always possible. In fact, it's not possible a lot of the time, particularly if one is very anxious. Um, and I think so. Your thoughts and also your your stuff in order, presuming you want to leave things to other people, if you, if indeed you own anything. So you know, writing a will and all of these things. So, but I think to the confusion, the deliberate ideological confusion with the the, the 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 sort of perennial reflection on one's own mortality um and also in relation to those people you love or those people who love you is is kind of always there um for everybody. I, I slightly will will challenge Helen's framing about the the nobody, the idea that we are kind of nobody. Um in a sense, I actually think this is is a kind of a uh, positive thing like that to be nothing is is precisely to be able to give your life meaning um through the confrontation with your own finitude um and therefore accept that it is precisely you who is producing value in terms of the things that you um associate so in a way i well i don't disagree it's actually just a starting point i suppose and I, and and in this sense i'm quite heideggerian i suppose that that you know actually um, it's in the light of 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 the acceptance of one's own finitude that one generates meaning um, precisely because uh existence is is finite and um and to live authentically in that way as Heidegger would put it um I think is is a very uh interesting uh thing to try try to do. It's, it, there is a kind of question about how how far we actually genuinely can integrate the knowledge of our own death it, it's it's a very very tricky one I think I mean we might be able to accept it abstractly and practically um but whether we also, have a fundamental fantasy that we we won't die somehow, or that we are in some sense immortal. Immortal, and perhaps this is like a question of the soul or something will live us. So I like to think of it in terms of memory. No one dies until the last person that remembers them dies, which I think is a more poetic way of uh, understanding it. Um, you know, and obviously, if you have children, then there's a whole another question of, of 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 what it is to to um, to live on and 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 so on. Um, and I think in, in Lars von Trier's film, <laughs> I know this wasn't the film we were talking about, but just to finish, I, 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 think what he does is he poses the question of what it means to be confronted with your own mortality, which indeed we all are. And, and he, he, he externalizes it and he reifies it in the form of the, the planet or the, the comet that hits, is going, the meteorite that's going to hit the earth. Um, and the reactions are borne out by the, the individuals who behave in relation to it in the family. So, you can of course commit suicide in the face of your own existence camus says this is the 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 first and only question if you like um you know that the husband commits suicide before the the planet is hit um you can embrace death as the 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 depressed uh character does uh, and indeed this is the realist position and we know that depressed people tend to see things much more realistically they they are fundamentally much more um attuned actually to the likelihood of things most people live in a way that's futural and overly optimistic, um, but this is also a way of 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 living. Uh, I think I probably would fall into that category. You can go out, kind of screaming and resisting, which is what the sister does. Um, you know, the, the the anxiety, the panic, even in the face of of, of absolutely assured um, destruction, um, or you can be an animal or an, and a child and just sort of accept <laughs> what what is what is happening. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, one very, very tiny thing I just want to add at the end is that the when this film came out, which is an, obviously a Netflix thing, as, as Benjamin went into detail, there was this kind of plague like there is now for everything for like a day or two on, on social media um, where everyone was talking about this film or seemed to be. And if there's something kind of absolutely uh, bizarre and, and and kind of uncanny about this, and this seems to happen all the time with whatever issue it the day of the day is and i haven't been using social media for for a few weeks now and i only have facebook left i don't have twitter i don't have uh, instagram or anything else um and i'm really feeling this very very sinister um you know viral nature of these kind of affectation of these i don't know infections of of whatever it is we're supposed to be talking about that day uh, and um i i made a joke at the when this thing came out and i said oh we should set up a patreon to pay people 5 pounds not to watch this film because I know I'm obsessed with this five pound note that seems to float around Patreon, but that, you know, that that people should be paid not to watch this film. And I was volunteering not to watch this film. And indeed, I haven't finished watching this film. So frankly, the universe owes me five pounds. The end.
0: Yeah, there is a sense in which you feel a little bit coerced by a film like this. Yeah, we did field a lot of requests from patrons to watch this film, and we ultimately decided to do it on the basis of having been coerced by the number of people who want us to do it. Uh, You know, thinking about about death, oof, death, I've always been partial to the view that every moment has intrinsic value regardless of whether it contributes to any other moment. Uh, And that if moments have to add up to something, then they're taken instrumentally. And I think that diminishes whatever it is that they add up to. So for the things that moments do add up to to matter, the moments themselves, I think, must also matter. I think mattering goes all the way down and all the way up. And I think that allows us to both integrate and not integrate the reality of death because death matters if you think that moments only matter if they add up to something and you feel that death prevents them from adding up to something. But if moments have intrinsic value, then death doesn't diminish them in that kind of way. And so then taking account of death is also not taking account of death.
1: This is very true. I have to say, I do agree. You know, i obviously talking in a very hyperbolic way about we're nobody, just in contrast to the, the um, me, 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 me. I know everything about mm. everything. And I'm morally, everybody needs to hear my voice, responds to everything <laughs> and also i do do sort of think of this thing of like the the phantasmic element of being like we are the ones who will be the end of the universe you know and yet we still have children we still go to work so we don't really believe it you know but is that you know it's only in, in accepting you know it's only in being nobody that you are somebody right <laughs> that, that that you actually can acknowledge yourself as you are or that you know you're an agency often but as, as humans you know we, we are split subjects, so. We can acknowledge and not acknowledge at the same time. And obviously, as you pointed out, I mean, with a depressed person, it's like, well, the depressed person can and you know people in certain different subjective categories maybe can be have an mm. openness to certain realities that other people aren't. But what is the quote unquote healthiest or best way? Often, yeah, I mean there's there's utilitarian there's a utilitarian dimension in various ways of looking at it. But obviously having this sort of veil of reality and a sort of good ego boundary, you can kind of get going and, and interact with reality or whatever um but yeah but it's interesting because like the thing about this film and, and i think there are other things like um squid games that fall into the same category where they're less you know we talked about like twilight which is just a bad film <laughs> and, and it's kind of obvious why it's bad or whatever but there's lots of people that i know whose opinions i do generally like think are really really accurate who liked both of these things or who maybe liked them and then it took them a little while to realize that they didn't like them, but they weren't sure why. And I think this is sort of a new a new form of like mediatized ideology. This sort of I mean there are others like it, but Squid Games kind of was similar for me.
0: Yeah, I I attempted to watch a couple episodes of Squid Game because I wanted to understand that. And it was a distinctly unpleasant experience. Because While there are films that have used that kind of, and shows that have used that kind of extreme violence to make a point, uh, here the violence clearly existed for its own sake and the point was an excuse. There was no real effort to say anything deep about any of it. It was the suggestion that maybe there was that allowed you to excuse the rest of it. And then if you wanted to just watch a bunch of people be miserable for 10 hours, then you could, and you could pretend that, you were watching it for some kind of social reason but that was really all the social justification was
2: but and i mean I isn't, think- yeah a, a large quantity of of um culture is sadistic in this sense like i last time i tried to watch like normal television they were all these kind of um shows where people would compete and it was you know just very cruel mm-hmm. you know it was it was clearly extremely sadistic and that the sadism was shared by was was given to the audience as, as a something to enjoy, right to enjoy laughing at people who thought they had talent or um, to laugh at people who were um in a house or whatever. you know I mean it's it's that there is this uh, I don't know, sadistic supplement in this um you know that that becomes like the default, you know that that you the permissible hate, as mm-hmm. it were, you know you're allowed to hate certain groups or types of people. Yeah, and
0: that's the political economy of this. It is, of course, very lucrative to sell stuff that caters to these kinds of feelings because they're quite widespread in a population where people have no sense of community and view most of the rest of society as the enemy,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, exactly,
0: either latently or explicitly.
1: Exactly, and it's interesting because I think like Squid Games operates a little bit like you know the quote unquote stupid Guatemala children of Zijek's, where you get to enjoy the You know, you you get to—I mean—in a sense, the puritanical, right? You get to enjoy the like gladiatorial grossness, whilst at the same time feeling ethically superior that you can see the truth of capitalism. That, like, you know, maybe makes you know sort of subtle, and you get the hidden message, and that you're critiquing, you know, the whole thing. Um, But there was something. Helen, did
0: you know that poverty will make people do desperate things for money? Because I only found that out from watching the first two episodes of Squid Game,
1: and you got to, before that I didn't to, know that. You got to enjoy. You get. You got to be. Ba- it's funny because there is like this weird nod to Lacan a couple of times, but I feel like it really just didn't, was not Lacanian at all. Um, but like you, you know, we we get we we're like libidinally invested, in they're like, oh my god, they're going to go over the edge, and ninety nine people are going to die. They're going to get blown up. Yeah, I mean, hmm. There was also a thing. There was also a thing about so the guy who had written Squid Games had um, I think written it nine years ago, and everyone was like, "This can't be made." This is you know he didn't get it made basically, and then nine years later, obviously it got made. And it was this big hit, and it was sort of like a, a message, you know, a message of like, "Don't give up as an artist," and your your true genius will be discovered at one stage. <laughs> and it's like yes, <laughs> once it's once it's ideologically convenient to 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 have this sort of supplement yeah uh, i don't know but um there was something you mentioned benjamin about uh the neighbor yeah that every everybody else is the enemy everybody is the one who doesn't get it um which again i mean it happens like a, and and this is something that you know we can all fall into right and that that all of us at whatever level of critique can fall into and i guess this is this is the thing you know in terms of like you know the fact that we all die and we're united in the fact that we all die there is no exception um yeah, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, and this is part of the film that the these wealthy people obviously create an ex- escape hatch, and and the Trump the Trump female does as well. Um, but that um, so, so I've just got to get my step back. Yes, that that we we we're like so we're united in our in our normal you know finitude, and that you know to be political is not to be like you don't have to be ethical to be political. You don't have to be, obviously the, the ethical is in the non-performative ethics of seeing, seeing rea- you know, as in not seeing reality for what it is, because I think there's various different dimensions that mm-hmm. undercut that point. But in terms of, let's say, the market, market capitalism, you know, and that you don't have to be a perfect person, a perfect record, have a perfect record to do something political or to uh, to be... Presenting a correct assessment of what's going on.
0: Well, I think there's a bit of a revenge fantasy at the end of Don't Look Up because it, it, during the credits and, you know, you, you wouldn't have seen this part. The, uh, the couple thousand people who get on the spaceship and leave, you know, including the guy who is responsible for the failed attempt to mine the asteroid, uh, they wake up from their Creo sleep several thousand years in the future on a planet full of giant monsters that tear them all to shreds. And you're supposed to think, oh, well, that's a nice way for it to end. They all get torn to shreds. Those bastards, they deserved it, didn't they? They were the stupid ones who caused everybody else to die. And and it's that kind of just going for the easy Mm -hmm. revenge plot. Exactly.
1: Mm. Who knows? Maybe the people who go through the hatch, maybe they create a new, you know you know what I mean? Like we well, don't know. The Owl of Minerva, you know.
0: Well, and the reason I mentioned Power of the Dog, have you guys have has anybody seen that? No, no wow.
1: but everybody seems to love it. Everybody I know but I haven't seen it yet. But I might
0: do. I just I just want to say briefly that I hate it. And I don't hate it for the reasons that Sam Elliott hates it. Sam Elliott hates it because he thinks the cowboys are too gay. I don't hate it because <laughs> the cowboys are too gay. I hate it because the whole conceit of that film is that somebody who is a little bit mean verbally should be murdered in revenge for the fact that they said some things that weren't nice. And that you should feel like, yeah, great. You stick it to the bully. Murder people who say mean things. Straight up murder them. Uh, and that is clearly the theme of that film. And I think it's pathetic that that, that, that kind of film has been nominated for 12 Academy Awards, that people, uh, and that nobody's criticizing it. And that when people do criticize it, they criticize it for reasons completely unrelated to that.
1: Mm-hmm. I just think it's ridiculous. I know, it, is, it is interesting. Cause there was, I saw something today, I don't know, where, where some, somebody was lambasting Sam Elliott for his take. Um, because as if that's the only critique that you could make of something and he's such an uncultured idiot and he doesn't understand how films work or whatever. But in a it way- It has you know, a
0: disciplinary effect to say that if you don't like Power of the Dog, it must be because you're a homophobe like Sam Elliott. Well makes impossible This is
1: precisely what happens, though. In, you know, in discourse today, if you don't say this, then mu- the only position you can have is a fascistic position, which is precisely, you know, which filmmaker said this, that like totalitarian is precisely the- totalitarianism is precisely like the inability to tolerate nuance and yeah. the thing is it's like yeah and all this audiastic fantasy stuff is, pre- is precisely related to the lack of desire to um to 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 to, to, to contemplate nuance and it's really and, and and then there's something there is something that is this sense that we bear today which is i don't you know, I must be ethical. I must have the right position. And I think this is something that people really feel. This is like, this is an inner, outer voice. This is the voice of the big other. Um, and like, you can't do art that way. That's completely censorious. You know, we see this with with um, um, the way that the critic critics are today. And you see this so much with, and not just, so first of all, I just want to say about the Sam Elliott thing. Like it is annoying, A, that like when people criticize like woke stuff just for like oh I don't want to see an x person doing this this is annoying now it's like yeah okay can we just get over this but that's fine whatever you can criticize them whatever you want but it is just like that's not really often the issue the issue is a deeper dynamic um but so if you look at critics scores today in terms of rotten tomatoes if you look like a, at a great canonical film often the rotten sc- tomato score you know they've totted up all the critics from say 50 years ago it's mixed. It might be 60%. Mm-hmm. And this is for these are the greatest pieces of work. Now it's like 13% or a hundred percent certified yeah. fresh or rotten. And then of course, this is nothing to do with the fact that say you get these, uh, these sort of hagiographies, hey, like, um, often sort of, um, you know, like the Bill Gates thing or the Fauci thing or whatever. And the audience score is like 5%. And then the, um, the critic score is like 100%, you know, and that's obviously maybe, you know, to do with a professional position and having to have the right opinion or whatever. But it's it's really the thing that really, for frust- I find shocking is that everybody within these um, roles feels that they this is not a coincidence. It's not suddenly that everybody has the right, you know, there's a there's a way to like something and there's a way to not like something. Like you can, this is one of the greatest films ever made, I think. I don't know if you can see it, it's called 35 Shots of Rum. You can hate that film and that's fine and that's you know partly a dyna- something that it proves that it's a piece of art.
2: I think I think it's basically very difficult for people to think for themselves and I mean it's a very very fundamental thing but it's very 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 hard you know to actually ask oneself critically and honestly what you think of something or somebody or a particular position actually requires quite a strong degree of um i don't know how to put it like uh, not only self-respect <laughs> but patience and an ability to not be um immediately emotionally manipulated which is extremely difficult in a social you know a hyper rapid social media age because the emotional um pull You know, when you see, say, somebody saying something is great or something is terrible, is is very, very um, direct. It's very, it's it's difficult to maintain a position when you're confronted with, let's say, overwhelmingly positive comment about something, Um, because you it's difficult to to um, feel wrong. (laughs) You know, we're we're super social animals when we've been hyper socialized now to the extent that our nerve endings are basically attached to a computer you know and it's very very um painful to actually stand against people that or a group that you feel like you belong to and actually to do so comes at great social cost so we know that most people a lot of people are extremely conformist some people are mildly conformist and a f- fewer people um are less conformist or not conformist at all um you know and people will make calculations about what it's worth getting upset about politically and aesthetically
0: and, of course, you know, contrarianism is itself a form of conformism. Yeah. Defining yourself reliably against whatever's cool is just another way of letting what's cool define who you are. And so there's a chunk of people who superficially appear to be thinking for themselves who aren't really.
2: Yeah, so, and often if you take, oppose something, you'll get accused of being a contrarian, and then it, after that you get accused of being a Nazi. Mm. <laughs>
1: So um, this sounds very, very trite, but there's like an element of truth in it. A friend of my dad's, he's a journalist. And once said to my dad, like, you know, and he's he's an older person, you know, so not of this generation, but that, um, and, it, you know, he reported on the troubles a lot, but the, the sign of a, a great journalist is like never knowing what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. You know, you open their, you know, you open their opinion piece or you open their reporting, you just, you don't know where it's going to And, you know, I think that, Obviously we have our positions and often our stances and our personalities and everything, but I think that's partly true. And today, you know, you open X media outlet and you know exactly what is always going to be said. And I think it even upsets people when the line, you know, people go to these things to cathartically hear what they, and this is, this is not yeah. only saying, you know, like the Guardian or whatever, this happens on other contrarian outlets where you go and then sometimes you're like, oh, they don't. I mean, you, you know, and you see this in comments, they haven't said what I want them to say. So that's whatever.
2: But yeah. Yeah. I want to put in a quick word, actually. to a, a, uh, another cultural thing that came to mind while I was... Uh, uh, Two thirds watching this film and and also thinking about Melancholia, which is Dennis Potter's Cold Lazarus from 1996, which I don't suppose either of you have seen. It's it although you might have done. Um, it was actually very very formative uh, TV. Uh, show four-part TV show it was actually I didn't remember but I just checked it it was actually a collaboration between channel 4 and BBC one which is very interesting which is something that Potter requested um because usually they're then you know they not, don't work together at all and it was something that he made uh, written by Dennis Potter I, uh, when he knew that he was dying of pancreatic cancer, um, and it's it's a four part series about cryogenics and it's about immortality and it's about the resurrection, as in Lazarus, um, of uh, somebody, a writer whose head is frozen, and it, it's 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 a it's a deep and very profound exploration of I think the meaning of finitude and how living forever precisely uh, diminishes and in fact um, induces greater forms of suffering. That the 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 bid for immortality is in fact um, uh, far more destructive and far more um deadly than than death itself, if you see what I mean as as a form of acceptance and it, it, as a teenager, I suppose I would have been about sixteen or seventeen when this was on. Television. Um, and it was one of the most striking things I'd ever seen. Like, I didn't know that television was capable of such mm-hmm. a thing. I mean, I don't know how I would feel about it now. I probably, you know, maybe I'd be more critical. But as something that explored some of these issues that we're talking about now, um, it was astonishing. And, and I think there is this I was having a conversation with someone the other day about, about the history of television in terms of what it was capable of doing, you know, in terms of well, putting out these um, extremely high level um philosophically interesting morally um explorative um programs that were very well written and very well produced you know within the budget but had this effect on people you know that prompted totally. them to think i, I honestly totally. think that this was one of the things that prompted me to think you know to become a thinking subject was exactly. was this tv show honestly H- 100% like i
1: there there are films and tv shows that do that and it is mm. the thing that is very Shocking to me now is the, um, the well. I, I I think it is it, uh, film and television is the the least risk taking of all of all mm. industries. I see friends who work in like tech and stuff, and the amount of risk and like investment and stuff that's thrown at it—it's mm. like Jesus, because it has that sort of utilitarian idea that you know this is even though things will fail, it's for a greater good. But like. Film and TV now, it's like, but, but there is there is a utilitarian benefit, actually, to making all kinds of things with all kinds of risks, with all kinds of different voices. Like, of course there is. Um, and, you know, foregrounding of nuance is one of these things. But it did make me think, so obviously, like, de- uh, death resuscitates life. Like, an end gives everything else meaning. You know, finitude cre- is what generates, like, a life force and a will to live. You know, if you don't have an end, why would you bother to do anything? Um, but it does sort of make me wonder whether there's this profound kind of you mentioned melancholia, and I don't know mm. if it's if it's, you know, maybe maybe something different, some a, a sort of a form of modern depression, where it's the same thing every day. It's this constant kind of like we're zapped our our new, you know, our our like our limbic system is zapped and our nerves are constantly on end, but it's the same thing, different day. And we live in this sort of like, we don't have the chaos of the encounter as much anymore. Obviously this is partly to do with um, uh, COVID. You know, we're not, we're we're like protected from contingency in our sort of like very atomized world. And life becomes like kind of very dreary. And maybe we need this sort of imagined end to actually Mm -hmm. give us some kind of like, judge in terms of existence
2: Mm. because you know i I was yeah yeah i was just wondering about this kind of um, nihilism you mentioned before and and you know i remember you know in previous incarnations of my myself this to go back to your point about the kind of feeling like you're nobody and nothing you know i think there is almost like a kind of depressive activist position which is like you know, feeling of guilt and feeling like you must do something and something must be done. You know, this kind of urgency. Yeah. But at the same time, you're kind of nothing and nobody, and that you sort of have to um, exit your entire self. You know, that it would be it would be almost immoral to think about yourself or your own health, even. But that, know, is, is a, that is the elevate. That's the rarefication of a nothing into something, right? In, right, like, exactly. And, yeah. and actually, paradoxically, it's extremely narcissistic. And yes, I think exactly. the flip side, the flip side of a uh, uh, nihilism in this sense or like an activist nihilism or e- online you know the mm-hmm. same thing right is 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 narcissism mm-hmm. you know it's that it's the kind of um abjection as a form of praxis which yeah. basically eva- it, it, you know but but the the compensation or the attempted compensation is um a, a sort of fantasy of a of a recognition in some way p- potentially yeah uh, but but in, in in a utopian moment like no, exactly oh, if we can only if we can only get justice for this thing or if only we can solve this problem or restore this thing or whatever that we will be redeemed
1: because i do think there there is something like so this is the the as, as we we're talking about like the the nobody becomes the absolute you become this sort of like goddess of ethics and you become like morally certain and you 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 don't, it's like the Zizek joke of, you know, the three, the, in, in some like Jewish temple, you have the, the rabbi, the businessman and the, the cleaner and the rabbi is like, at the altar, God, I am not worthy. And then the um, mm. businessman's like, I'm not worthy. And then the cleaner says, comes along and says, God, I'm not worthy. And they're like, fuck off. And, you know, we see this obviously <laughs> with a lot of the like racialized um, stuff where it's like, we, the whiteies are evil, but you don't have the right mm. to see yourself as evil. Um, But, so there's that, but I actually think that the most productive form of like the political is only, is not that you're, you're, um, you're like more than, more than someone in your nothingness, but you are only like an actual person in your nothingness. And you, you, you actually take correct and sort of like, if anything is ethical, this kind of action where you actually don't care about, you stop believing the ideology of promise. You stop participating in like utopianism. And then you can actually like tarry with normal things and just say like, this isn't right in this particular mm-hmm. situation. Well this is and this isn't tied to some sort of like oh my god, you know, like wider certainty or wider crusade, but this is just sort of a like this is a bad thing and I'm okay because I don't um I don't have this sort of immortal utopian fantasy that I will be the one that transcends reality through for instance capital. Um and I'm okay that people will be a bit like mean to me for standing up, but that's about it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're not directly jacked into the pure form of justice or the good, right? Yeah. Which is what, what, what be, you know, you get carried away in thinking. And like when I was very involved in in, in sort of defending Alfie, which, which was objectively extremely unjust <laughs> situation, yeah. um, it, it's very easy to get incredibly um, consumed with Feelings of of injustice and, you know, a kind of white hot anger, which is not in itself very helpful. It's not helpful to you. It's not helpful to people around you. You know, and I wasn't the only one for whom this became a kind of paradigmatic mode of being, right? Like around the student movement and everything that came afterwards. Um, but it, it, it's actually unbelievably destructive, um, you know, and, and in in a, in a, I don't know, completely embodied sense, like to, to think that you have... Um, yeah, I don't know, somehow uh, a privileged access or privileged relation to the pure form of justice, let's say.
0: Yes, and if you're acting from a position of political impotence, the way that you feel that what you're doing is significant is by provoking response. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reminds me of an episode of Community where Britta, the kind of protester character, gets into this kind of love-hate relationship with Chang, who during that season is a cop. And she, she does things to upset Chang, and then Chang gets to uh, tase her or mace her and <laughs> haul her off. And they look at each other, and it plays romantic music every time this happens. Because the only way either of them can feel important, you know, a student at a community college and a community college comp, is for each to create work for the other to deal with.
2: Mm. I love it. Okay. I think we're
0: at Are an we hour. an hour? Yeah, we're at an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B side. I think we might talk a little bit about Ukraine on the B side. So do do feel free to join us over there. Of course, we're posting these every other week now, so it'll probably be in about a week that you'll be able to hear the Ukraine conversation. By which point it will be hopelessly out of date, but say la vie. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.